Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. This is part four in the story of how feature films in Canada got their start. As mentioned in part one, I will be using as a reference a book called Canada's Hollywood by Ted Magder. Chapter 11 In May 1984, the Ministry of Communications introduced the National Film and Video Policy. The author says here, quote, More than 50 years after the government first announced its intention to make broadcasting a great agency for communication of matters of national interest and for the diffusion of national ideals, and more than 15 years after the CFDC had set about the task of building a viable feature film industry in Canada, there was still a crisis, unquote. Perhaps it would always be so, and perhaps the crisis was in part a function of government policy, but the government was still intent on shoring up the cultural ramparts, or at least appearing to do so. But something was happening. There was another commission, of course, this time the McDonnell Commission, and it published a recipe for Canada's economic future. It was a comprehensive bilateral free trade agreement with the U.S. This commission had actually been established by the Liberal government in 82, but the free trade idea was the principal recommendation that was to be implemented by the progressive conservative government of Brian Mulroney later on. This free trade agreement was signed in October 87. The timing could not have been worse for the Department of Communication, because it was preparing, again, to introduce legislation to deal with the American dominance in film and video. An interesting note here, the author says that after aerospace technologies, weapons of war really, the U.S. entertainment industry is the second most lucrative source of foreign revenues for the United States. In 1986, the United States had a cultural trade surplus with Canada of about 1.5 billion, billion with a B. As a debtor nation, the United States could not afford to have one of its few international surplus tampered with. As of 1981, 97% of the profits from Canadian film theatrical distribution went to foreign, well, basically American companies. By the middle of the decade, the American majors controlled over 90% of the Canadian video cassette market. But that wasn't enough. So here's another example of Hollywood's greed and their need to dominate the industry. The majors have uh, not always been very eager to handle Canadian films because over 95% of Canadian films are distributed by Canadian firms. So because of this, Canadian distributors pretty much exists on the margins of the industry. The Canadian film and video industry is severed at the head. Most of the revenue that is generated flows to foreign sources. For Canadian distributors, there were sometimes a few crumbs that they could get from the exploitation of B-movies, art films, anything that is not feature film-related or come from Hollywood majors. 
they could make some money from the small percentage of those profits. But Hollywood majors back in the 80s had established new distribution companies, like United Artists Classics, to suck off the profit from that small sector. They wanted to distribute these other films that they had usually looked down on, because at that time they perceived some profit from that sector. So now they were in that market. So therefore, Canadian distributors who handled those things were cut off from any money. And then Columbia Pictures finalized a deal to distribute all of Gaumont's film. This was a French giant in film distribution and production in Europe. Columbia Pictures had a deal that would go, and would go on to distribute those films, the Gaumont films, in North America. So wherever there was any kind of a possibility of making money, from any films by distribution or exhibition, the Hollywood majors went for it. They tried to suck up all the profits from all the movies being shown in Canada. Meanwhile, there was another task force that said that the American distribution firms had always considered Canada to be part of their domestic market. They said that all distribution of films and videos should be done by Canadian-owned firms. It made another recommendation that foreign distribution companies should only have the rights to import or distribute motion pictures for which they possess worldwide distribution rights. Distribution companies should be eligible for federal government funding by the CFTC, obviously Canadian ones, and the company could not import more than 60% of their film money. If implemented, the measures might help free up a significant number of foreign films for distribution by Canadian firms. The major distributors would no longer be able to go to Cannes and buy the North American rights to a film and exclude Canadian distributors. But of course, the author says here, this would entail direct confrontation with the long-established Hollywood interests in Canada. Experience had shown that such measures would not be taken lightly. It was safe to say that Americans would fight tooth and nail. Meanwhile, in Quebec, the party in charge of the province was the Parti Québécois. Related to all this, the Quebec government had a cinema law called Bill 109, and with respect to distribution, this bill was a bombshell. In its original form, the bill stated that all distribution firms operating in Quebec would have to be at least 80% Canadian-owned. That is, all distributors operating in Quebec would have to share in a formula to contribute certain portions of their revenues to a provincial production fund. And that English-only films could run for only 60 days before a dubbed French version would have to be made available. Canadian independent distributors applauded. The American majors were furious. It had a trade association called the MPAA, and its president, Jack Valenti, said that Quote, Only Mozambique imposes stiffer controls on foreign firms. Mozambique at the time was a communist country in Africa. And of course, the usual lackeys in Canada, the Canadians whose paycheck is dependent on Hollywood, said that if passed, the legislation would result in the awakening of hostilities that it will isolate Quebec, which is a way of saying that Hollywood won't like it. After the first round of hearing uh, on the bill, and countermeasures by a U.S. consulate, the Quebec Minister of Cultural Affairs introduced a number of significant revisions. And I don't need to tell you what the revisions are, but basically the bill was 
watered down. After the amendments, the bill was passed on the 22nd of June 1983, and the majors promised to be a very uncooperative. One of the amendments said that the majors would be allowed to distribute more those films that they had produced, or for which they had acquired world rights, and all distributors in Quebec would be required to reinvest at least 10% of the gross revenues in Quebec-based production. So this bill was passed in the National Assembly in June 83, and after this, the Americans held a meeting with Francis Fox of the federal government, and they basically made threats that the MPAA may prefer to close shops, meaning Hollywood would close and remove their films from circulation instead of conforming to the new law. To use the jargon of American jingoism, the author says, what the MPAA feared most was the domino effect of the legislation. A measure like this would could spread like a viral contagion to all the nations of the world, like communism, I guess. Then the federal government finally presented the National Film and Video Policy, and it dealt with more or less with the question of distribution. It made some changes concerning the National Film Board. All the government uh, productions would now be contracted out. And this was basically continuing the, the trend towards the privatization of film production that everybody wanted. The second trust of the policy paper concentrated on the private sector to symbolize the merger of film and television with the intention to treat them as two sides of the same coin. Telefilm was also given a budget increase of $7.5 million. The central conclusion to draw from the film policy was that the main factor was on the production of film for export. But what about the question of distribution? The policy said pretty much the usual things that all the other committees and policymakers had said. Quebec's Bill 109 contained proposals that met this problem head-on. The federal government, on the other hand, saw negotiation as the preferred solution. It was as incredible as it was predictable, says the author. The government had seen that this Bill 109 had caused the Parti Québécois a whole bunch of trouble. And of course, there was a federal election coming up, and there was a fury at possible countermeasures from Hollywood. The Canadian government still believed that international distribution to American majors was the proper economic strategy. For all these reasons, the federal liberal government backed away. For all these reasons, the federal liberal government backed away from altering the structure of the distribution sector. What a shock. Now, back in Quebec, things were not going well there either. The Hollywood majors said that they were prepared to relinquish distribution of films to Quebec to independent distributors, unless they had the world rights. Otherwise, it would be business as usual in Quebec. And so that was their solution to the bill, and the minister in Quebec said no. So they published their own draft regulation. A holder of world rights meant any person who held rights with the film's country of origin. Quebec's measures were tougher. So there was negotiations and public hearings. Hollywood haggled over the proposals, but they said they were okay with the provision that the French subtitle or dub version of the U.S. release be made available after 60 days. The MPAA went further than that, suggesting that they were prepared to get out of the business of distributing non-English language films in Quebec and they wanted to settle the issue without legislative measures. They said the passage of the bill would make it very difficult for the U.S. majors to continue to do business in Quebec. 
Quebec distributors made a rational suggestion that a producer be defined as that person or company that held the film's copyright on the first day of photography, and the world meant the world. These recommendations were accepted, and the draft regulations went to cabinet for approval. And guess what happened? The Quebec cabinet backed down on implementing Bill 109 after concerted pressure from the U.S. consulate and the MPAA. They threatened that the U.S. studios would pull out if the bill went true. Strongly worded letters were sent to the Prime Minister and the Premier of Quebec. A policy advisor said that the Americans always wanted just the status quo. And that was it. It's more the principle of being afraid of the domino effect, actually. And the Parti Québécois were afraid of losing the election and a tactical boycott by the American majors would not help. Despite all that, the Parti Québécois went down to defeat in the election. But then a strange thing happened. Even though the Americans considered the Parti Québécois to be an aberration, they were surprised to learn that the new government in Quebec, which was a liberal government, was still committed to Bill 109. And guess what? The chief negotiator for the new liberal government in Quebec was Francis Fox, formerly of the federal liberal government. Those politicians move around a lot to keep their jobs. So the Quebec liberal government started up another series of talks with the Americans. A deal was signed in October 86. The new deal was a compromise that the majors could live with. The term producer now referred to anyone or a company who invested $4.5 million in Canada. The clauses concerning reinvestments in Quebec productions were left for a future negotiation. But significantly, this extension of distribution privileges did not apply to Canadian films from outside Quebec. But it did give Quebec-based distributors better access to certain non-English language films something the Americans had already said they were prepared to give up. But at the end of the day, the financial implications of the deal were marginal. The president of the MPAA, Jack Valenti, smugly announced that the deal was signed in recognition of Quebec's unique status, and it should not be considered a precedent for other countries or other Canadian jurisdictions. A more honest appraisal would be that the deal recognized the unique status of the American majors in Canada, and that the bill had given that status a legal base. A more honest appraisal would be that the deal recognized the unique status of the American majors in Canada, and that the bill had given that status a legal base. So, after the MPAA and the Quebec government had reached an agreement on Bill 109, the Canadian federal government announced it was about to introduce its own legislation on distribution. The Minister of Communication, Flora MacDonald, revealed a proposal to limit the activities of foreign distributors only to those films or videos for which they held world distribution rights. According to some, MacDonald's proposal would transfer 7% of the major's revenues in Canada to Canadian-owned firms. And although distributors were pleased with the announcement, they thought it went too far. The distributors like Cineplex said that the American government will not sit idly by. And given the significant lobbying cloud of the Americans, those companies were afraid of Hollywood retaliating. 
Jack Valenti of the MPAA moved quickly to signal his displeasure. He mobilized the U.S. President at the time, Ronald Reagan, and the U.S. Senate to go and act on this thing. And remember, this was in the early days of the Free Trade Agreement before it was signed. At this time, October 15, 1987, the preliminary text of the Free Trade Deal was signed and McDonald did not introduce the proposed legislation. New proposals were announced following May, and of course they were pale imitations of the original proposal. To ease the disappointment of Canadian distributors, the minister announced a $17 million a year film distribution fund to be administered by Telefilm Canada. In June 88, by October, the free trade election, so-called, in Canada was on, and the bill never went forward. Free trade was a big thing in Canada. Some of you might remember those days, and there was talk back in, in the days when people cared about these things, about keeping Canadian culture intact and protecting it from Americans. In this uh, free trade agreement, the uh, government argued that the deal was just about trade and the need to secure access to American markets and had nothing to do with culture. Now, American negotiators had trouble understanding this concern for cultural sovereignty, which is obvious because when you're the one who dominates, you don't need to worry about those things. But they certainly understood that the need to protect and defend the most lucrative market for their cultural goods, as we've seen. So they produced a report on it, and the first page of the report identified Canadian policies as a major irritant. For example, Canada places quotas on important programming for cultural reasons, but in effect it's protecting its government-subsidized film and television production industries. So this was a major irritant, and they were really harping on this. For them, free trade in cultural goods is vital to the international competitiveness of the American economy, and Canadians could not be allowed to set an example that was otherwise. So they put in a clause that responded to all this, and it said basically that people in Canada were concerned about this, because now the Canadian media was talking about Canadian culture and identity, and maybe expressing some concern about it. Things we don't really talk about anymore, like I said. People here in Canada didn't like having it officially in the deal that the Americans can do whatever they wanted. So they wanted protection for the cultural industries, and the government said, well, okay, we put a clause in. Uh, and the first clause explained that the cultural industries are exempt from the provisions of the free trade agreement, except in terms of tariffs. It said culture is exempt, but there's a certain other clause in the free trade agreement which says basically notwithstanding any other provision in this agreement, a party may take measures of equivalent commercial effect in response to actions that were taken, which means by basically that they could, Americans could retaliate if they didn't like what Canada was doing in the cultural industries. Consistent with the agreement, the first clause says that the cultural industries are exempt from the provisions of the free trade agreement, so there's no free trade in culture. The second clause of the, of the article says that, okay, but a party, meaning a country, may take measures of equivalent commercial effect. So if one country feels that they're being deprived of something, they can retaliate, which means that if Canada would create a new law or implement a quota or levy, like Canada threatened to do so at so many times in the past and never did, 
Under the free trade agreement, the U.S. could retaliate against Canada. And that's basically what that was. So if one country feels that they're being deprived of something, they can retaliate, which means that if Canada uh, would create a new law or implement a quota or a levy, like Canada threatened to do so many times and never really did, under the free trade agreement, the U.S. could retaliate against Canada. Canadian government officials tried to argue that they have preserved the right to introduce new cultural programs and that the notwithstanding clause safeguards new initiatives from heavy-handed American reprisals, limiting the extent of retaliatory action to measures of equivalent commercial effect. Now, that's bureaucratic jargon there. That's what the Canadian government said. But Americans didn't really understand the clause the same way. They had a better interpretation. The notwithstanding clause in the free trade agreement simply preserves the status quo. That's basically it. There is no change. Canada can basically put up another proposal to put a tax here or do this or do that. And if Americans don't like it, they can retaliate in other ways, in other industries, which is what we have seen that they've been doing anyway for the past 50 years. So nothing changed. So let's see. In 86, the government announced a five-year, $65 million feature film fund to be administered by Telefilm. The fund was designed to encourage theatrical productions, which had been marginalized as a result of the broadcast fund. 1986 turned out to be a year of optimism. Production totals were estimated to be in the neighborhood of $500 million, with over 50% of the total representing productions made without the assistance of Telefilm Canada. This was the year of movies like uh, The Decline of the American Empire, which was actually no nominated for an Oscar. Actually, I think it won. Other films made at that time that you may or may not know, like uh, Dancing in the Dark, Loyalties, I've Heard the Mermaid Singing, Family Viewing, The Adjuster, Roadkill, and so on. This comprised uh, a pretty solid core of relatively low-budget films that did receive a widespread critical acclaim and did well in the art film market. But the author here says there is an underside to this positive output. Much of the activity was a result of American film and television production in Canada. By taking advantage of both a cheaper dollar and lower prices, these runaway shows were responsible for at least 50% of the production activity. And by runaway shows, he means movies and TV for American markets. At the same time, Canadian production firms were themselves gearing their projects to the American market, in particular suppliers of prime-time or low-end programming. In no uncertain terms, the Canadian film and television industry was becoming dependent on American capital and the American market for its continued health. It would seem that the production of small amounts of specifically Canadian cultural products is dependent upon the commercial viability of an industry whose primary orientation is U.S. demand. There is absolutely nothing surprising in this. Indeed, it is in line with the advice and the expectations of many of the industry's important players, from Ray Peck in the 20s, Grierson in the 40s, Nat Taylor in the 60s, and Drabinsky in the 80s. They were all okay with Canada being a branch plant film industry for Hollywood.
Chapter 12 So now, to sum up. This has been a study of how Canada responded to the emergence of feature films as a form of popular cultural expression in the 20th century and to Hollywood's Herculean dominance over filmmaking here. The dynamics that have characterized the evolution of Canada's film industry are more nuanced than imperial imposition or colonial supplication. There are more a reflection of the social, economic, and political forces that constitute Canada than a mirror image of Uncle Sam. Machter is saying that the state of the Canadian film industry is the way it is, not because the Americans imposed their films on us, or that because we were just a bunch of submissive colonials. The Canadian state has made significant choices regarding the balance between American and Canadian film industries, and these choices have reflected domestic attitudes, interests, and strategies regarding the relationship between Canada and the U.S. So we have to put this in the context of not just some economic or cultural dominance, but in terms of our relationship with the U.S., because it's our government that sets film policy. And their idea of how we should accommodate ourselves to the U.S. is something which, in a way, is uniquely Canadian because, obviously, we are America's only neighbor to the, to the North. European countries had different approaches to adapt themselves to Hollywood dominance. So this is a study that deals more with how our Canadian approach to Hollywood has been done. And this reflects the politics of the country and our attitudes about Canada in the shadow of the U.S., some things which kind of really go beyond the movie industry itself. I mean, beyond movie aesthetics or even economics, there's a bit more to it than what some people might think. Until the late 50s, the near absence of a feature filmmaking in Canada was not a cause for serious concern, neither for the industry, the state, or the public. Until the mid-60s, most movies about Canada were made by Hollywood in Hollywood, but now things have changed slightly. The author says that uh, without the vast array of public policies in place, Canadian films and television would be a much more endangered species. With the policies, the industry appears to have acquired a sporting chance at survival. So in other words, it's kind of a good thing, despite all the trouble that we saw with the government in coming up with a film policy, still a good thing that we have them. But again, having said that, Hollywood's reach is global, and outside of the U.S., its market grip is nowhere more firm than in Canada. The author says something interesting here, quote, Canadians still experience Canadian dramas as an aberration from the daily fare of film and television material that flows from the U.S., it would be easy to conclude that in terms of dramatic film and TV, Canadian cultural policy has failed to establish the conditions for shared cultural expression among Canadians. And this book has been a study of that process of failure. Unquote. So there's a lot of contradictions there. On the one hand, you have the domination of Hollywood. On the other hand, we have a lot of movies being made here which we wouldn't have without the film policies. But the policies have not done anything to mitigate Hollywood's dominance, which is just as strong now as it was 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, I would say. 
But on the other hand, we have these policies and we have some movies that have done well. And again, the cultural policy has not helped to create an important thing in this whole process, which is to have Canadians be interested in watching Canadian films. And these policies have done nothing for that. And I don't think the policies were designed to do that anyway. But it does seem to be an important point in the whole process that you should have Canadians interested in watching Canadian films. So now the author makes a point here about the economics of dependency. He calls out some of the interesting differences between Hollywood and Canadian productions. He says again, uh, this is pretty much out-of-date numbers because it's back in the mid-90s, but the Hollywood feature film back then averaged more than $20 million in production costs alone. So $20 million for one movie. So these averages production costs are high, of course, the highest in the world. In Canada back then, an average hour of produced TV costs $100,000. A feature film, no more than $3 million. Again, there was, those are, those are mid-90s numbers. The United States has a large market, and the Canadian market is small. But I would question the comment about production costs being an appeal for the audience. I'm not sure if that's really true. Because he means here to say that the more a movie costs, the greater the appeal is for the audience. If there's any evidence to suggest that it is, I, I, I don't agree. But that's a, a subject for another podcast. And all other things being equal, U.S. filmmakers already have an immediate competitive advantage over their Canadian com competition anyway, with or without the appeal of high production values. So Magder goes back and forth comparing the economics between the U.S. and Canada, where advertising spillover is common, meaning that if a Hollywood movie advertises in the U.S. within the borders of Canada, we will get to know about these movies here without Hollywood having to pay to advertise here. So it's like free advertising. And because of this, the costs of publicizing American movies in Canada are minimal. Perhaps one reason why the American majors have always considered Canada to be part of their domestic market. Since, I guess if you think about it, if they market their movies in the U.S. and Canada gets the marketing by default, then aren't we Americans? Aren't we part of the U.S.? At the same time, Canadian buyers of film and TV have good reasons to shop American. In the case of film, the risks are certainly smaller because American distributors can underwrite large marketing campaigns and because the consumer demand for Hollywood films has built up over time. It's a bit of a habit here to watch Hollywood movies. From the moment anyone starts to watch film and TV in Canada, they're watching Hollywood products. We are used to it uh, at a very early age. And because of all these things, and because culture is now business, the relative cost of exporting American cultural products makes it difficult for Canadian com productions to compete on an equal footing. That's basically what Magder's been de demonstrating. It's not a level playing field. So he brings up all these things from the usual people that we've seen before. We said that Canada does not need a major film industry. This attitude was set in stone in the 20s from almost the, the very beginning of movies. I think we all know who these people are anyway. The Canadian exhibitors like Nat Taylor and all those Canadian business people who own movie theaters in Canada. They learned quickly that their livelihood depended on a stable flow of films from Hollywood and the establishment of arrangements that guaranteed long-term supply. With very few exceptions, Canadian exhibitors have collaborated with the American majors and facilitated 
the flow of transnational culture into Canada. Business acumen, not nationalist or anti-nationalist sentiment, is the basis of their action. The business practices of exhibitors make plain the pattern of dependency, which is not simply a function of markets performing according to textbook logic. The American majors moved early to secure the economic advantage, and Canadians basically were very happy to have them. He brings back, of course, the old debate about art and commerce, saying that some business people wanted Canadians to make movies that looked like American ones so they could sell them to the Americans. And others were more interested in making Canadian films for Canadians with Canadian subjects. And so he said there's always been this opposition or contrast between the two camps in Canada. That there was never a unified front against Hollywood. Magder says that there was an agreement of sorts that the feature film industry should take place primarily in the private sector and that, on the other hand, without government assistance, any attempt to build the feature film industry in Canada was doomed to failure, even one run by private businesses. So there was disagreement over the type of government assistance the industry should get. One was state intervention in conjunction with market forces, not market forces alone. In other words, economic variables alone do not provide sufficient explanation of the dynamics which have characterized the history of film in Canada. There should be, of course, a Canadian film industry, yes, but it should be private, yes, but the government should help us, the industry says. We can't do it on our own. We need government assistance. So the history of the film industry in Canada is not just a history of market forces operating by themselves. This is the history of the Canadian government helping the private sector. And Magda points out there is something deeply ironic about Canadian cultural policy. On one hand, the Canadian government has worked diligently to establish a technologically sophisticated and elaborate communication and cultural infrastructure. And this is a remarkable accomplishment given the country's sparse population and expansive geography. On the other hand, a careful analysis of the use to which these infrastructures have been put shows that they have been deployed in a manner supportive of continental integration. It may be said that Canada as a nation persists despite not because of communication media. So we know how to build roads and telephone lines and movie theaters and all that stuff. We have the infrastructure for TV, radio, and movies, but... These things are just vessels. They need content. And in our country, we have the infrastructure, but the content comes from another country, which is rather ironic, really, as the author says. In a way, we paid to build the infrastructure so that another country can show us their stuff. He asks some basic questions like, uh, why did the state move so late to support the establishment of a Canadian feature film industry? He asks some basic questions like, why did the state move so late to support the establishment of a Canadian feature film industry? The hands-off attitude was that the prevailing structures and practices of the feature film industry are okay and that they should not be touched. He also points out that there was, in the early days, uh, with the Massey Commission, a snob attitude about mass media and movies. Canada's cultural elite looked upon feature films as culturally debilitating and pedestrian. 
Nationality was not particularly important, but the Hollywood films were almost unanimously regarded as the very worst of a bad lot. Again, he goes back to the old days to bring up the usual suspects like Ray Peck and all those early people in the Canadian industry who said that we should basically facilitate American investments in Canada for Hollywood feature films. You know, a branch plant film industry. So there was this attitude of Canada's cultural elites who who kind of like, who preferred the old-fashioned arts like painting, sculpture, theater, and but mass media like film, radio, and TV, that was bad. So their attitude prevailed because they were in charge. Then there were the commercial people who were already in the film industry here in Canada, and their attitude was that Canada shouldn't be into feature film and should let Americans do their thing. And if there's any movies to be made about Canada, it'll be Americans who will do those movies for us. So we've seen that before with John Grierson, who brought us the documentary form, or force-fed us the documentary form. He looked down on Hollywood films and feature films also. He said Hollywood films were lazy, weak, reactionary, sentimental, and essentially defeatist. So the Massey Report was artistically elitist, an example of Canada's early cultural policy. And ideas matter, especially when they're the ideas of the dominant social and political force. So if the elites running Canada don't like mass media, don't like movies, well, or they think that it's just crass and and popular and too American, well, we're not going to get the Canadian film industry. Plus, the Canadian producers who were already doing films, only documentaries, of course, or industrial films, they had no willingness to pursue the development of feature films. At least in the early days, anyway, up until the 60s, there was nothing, really, that would encourage anybody to do anything. So nothing was done. Because of the times of the 60s, the more nationalistic period in Canada's history, there were industry spokespeople like Nat Taylor who began to make a case for feature filmmaking in Canada. Imagine this when every other Western country had a film industry since the beginning of movies, Canada only got two feature films made back in the early 60s. And then, of course, there was a bit of a a kind of back and forth between art and commerce with the industry people. The commercial people wanted movies made in Canada to look like Hollywood movies. And the other group was more interested in, I guess you could say, Canadian cultural nationalism. Uh, They wanted to make movies that reflected Canada. And they were more radical to the extent that you could say that wanting to see Canadians in Canadian movies on Canadian movie screen is a sign of uh, being radical. Only in Canada would something like that be seen as strange. Other countries don't seem to have a problem like that. So those uh, quote-unquote radicals proposed quotas and box office levies to help sustain feature film production in Canada. And the other Canadian producers did not support that type of practice, and the government didn't either. So, yeah, nothing was done. But we did get feature films somehow, financed by the government, but no help in distribution and exhibition of those films. These quotas and levies could not be an administrative decision. It had to be a political one of considerable magnitude because, of course, this would go against American interests. So they had to have some political will to impose these things, these levies and quotas, for feature films in Canada. 
But as we saw time and time again, there was no political will or backbone to do this. Other measures that the government tried, like the tax shelter, capital cost allowance thing, which resulted in a boom of movies from 78 to 80, was a commercial and cultural disaster. That is true. Of course, you could make a point that maybe the movies were awful, but they made money. I would argue that the reputation of Canadian films suffered then and suffers now because of these tax shelter films. And I'm thinking it's going to take another 50 years for people to forget those. This book was written back in the mid-90s, so some of the numbers are maybe out of date. But back then, uh, feature filmmaking was a cottage industry, which might still be true, actually. There's usually one or two exceptions, like some Canadian feature film that gets done by some miracle and it turns out to be pretty good. That happens once in a while. Feature films continue to be a weak link in the Canadian cultural chain, year in and year out. But the author says, perhaps that's the way it always be. Later on, he says, I quote here, Herein lies the problem for Canada. Canada is not only a state that governs over these two nations that we have, it's also a state that governs a populace exposed daily to the culture of a foreign nation and state. In English Canada, at least, there is almost no likelihood that Canadian cultural products will constitute more than a minority share of the culture consumed by Canadians. Also, cross-cultural crossover and consumption between the two language groups, French and English, is negligible. Each group consumes far more foreign culture than it consumes of each other's. Canadian cultural policy faces a dauntless and seemingly hopeless task. Unquote. A cultural policy based on nationalism is not without its appeal. Plainly, the marketplace is no guarantee of cultural pluralism, especially when it is driven by multinational corporations that enjoy all the advantages of an oligopoly in a market where the U.S. enjoys the advantages of scale. The history of Canadian feature films is proof enough of that. But in and of itself, a nationalism is a poor rationale for continued attempt to create alternatives to the market power of Hollywood. Nationalism can easily become chauvinistic, xenophobic, parochial and elitist. Nationalism makes for good rhetoric. It does not necessarily make for good politics. We do not need public support of cultural production in Canada to express a national identity. We have to stop to search for some romantic and overarching common cultural bond. Instead, we need public support for cultural production to explore the manifold and contradictory ways in which we exist as social beings in our everyday lives. Against all odds, the best of Canadian cinema has done just that. We need more of it, and to get it, we need the support of public policies that are based on the principle that when all is said and done, filmmaking is more than a business. We still need something more than Canada's version of Hollywood. Unquote. That's the end of the podcast and of the story of how feature films came to be in Canada. The book Canada's Hollywood ends in the mid-90s, so there might be some future podcasts about the state of the film industry in the 21st century, but I'm not promising anything.
If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com, nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now.